Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Darren Asimoglu, the Charles P. Kindleberger Professor of Applied Economics in the Department of Economics at MIT. Darren, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you very much, Ross. Thank you for having me. Darren, I'd like to talk about a recent essay you wrote that struck me as both eloquent and incisive. It was also short, and that's a rare combination. <laughs> uh, it gave your thoughts on the current crisis, and we'll put a link up to the essay. And I want to use that essay as the basis for our conversation today. So let me begin with a quote. Talking about the crisis, you say, it's an opportunity for us, and here I mean the majority of the economics profession, unfortunately myself included, to be disabused of certain notions that we should not have so accepted in the first place. It's also an opportunity for us to step back and consider what the most important lessons we've learned from our theoretical and empirical investigations that remain untarnished by recent events and ask whether they can provide us with guidance in current policy debates. The first, and here you're talking about the lessons that uh, you think we've learned, the majority of us, I suspect it's a supermajority, it's a big proportion of the, de- of the department, of the uh, profession. You write, quote, the first is that the era of aggregate volatility had come to an end. We believed that through astute policy or due technologies, including better methods of communication and inventory control, the business cycles were conquered. Our belief in a more benign economy made us more optimistic about the stock market and the housing market. If any contraction came, it must be soft and short-lived, and then it becomes easier to believe that financial intermediaries, firms, and consumers should not worry about large drops in asset values. So uh, talk about that lesson of – what we've learned about volatility. Okay, uh, so I guess what I was trying to get at there is uh, the fact that uh, a lot has been written over the past 10 years or so on great moderation, which is the name that uh, is sometimes used to describe the uh, decline in business cycle volatility that the U.S. economy experienced from mid-1970s, you know, until the recent crisis, essentially. And this is kind of a, this was a remarkable uh, decline in, 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 in aggregate volatility for the majority of uh, of, of human history, uh, aggregate economies and, you know, uh, individual uh, economic fortunes have been have been volatile. Uh, if you look at the most advanced economies in the 19th century, they were highly volatile. They went through big booms and busts, and uh, the same is true in the uh, uh, obviously in the early 20th century when uh, we had the Great Depression, and to a lesser degree uh, in the in the first uh, 20 years of uh, of the post-war era, and. Uh, and if you look at the data after 1970s, you see this uh, this decline in, uh, in 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 aggregate volatility in the U.S. economy and to a to a to a, to a fairly large extent in in other uh, in other developed economies of the OECD, Western Europe, for example. And uh, and the thinking uh, that developed among uh, among economists uh, and uh, and I guess implicitly among 
uh, other pundits writing on the on the business cycle uh, is that essentially either because we learn the craft of monetary policy or because somehow the new technologies uh, have changed the way that firms are able to respond to demand changes or supply or you know production opportunities essentially the aggregate volatility has become largely uh, a non-issue let me ask you and, about let me ask you about the technology sure. issue i think i hadn't really thought about that before i haven't heard that argument and i think is the argument there a sort of um a softening of creative destruction of a phrase you use a couple times in your piece that because the labor market and the capital markets are both so dynamic that as demand shifts within sectors in the economy, that the the likelihood of it spreading is small because resources can move around so effectively. And I think I think there's I think it's true. I think they do move around more effectively today than they did fifty years ago. Absolutely, absolutely. I wouldn't call it a softening of creative destruction. Uh, so so uh, for the following reason so let me let me just first agree with you and then I'll just uh, explain Clarify, why yeah. I wouldn't call it uh, a uh, a softening of creative destruction so essentially uh, the idea is is that both because finance is more available and the economy is more dynamic uh, resources can more easily go from one firm to another thus they can go from declining firms or declining sectors uh, or those whose fortunes look like they're going to be declining without creating much unemployment and uh, and delay to those who have better opportunities. And, uh, and similarly, it could also be the case, and there is some evidence consistent with this, that knowing that the financial sector is better able to diversify idiosyncratic risks Firms are able to be bolder and take more risks, and uh, and thus, uh, uh, you know, thus be able to exploit their comparative advantages or fail to exploit comparative advantages more quickly. And this creates kind of a better allocation of resources in the economy. At the same time, as also enabling resources to be allocated to their uses relatively rapidly and the idiosyncratic shocks being uh, uh, being diversified in a relatively efficient manner. And all of these, I think, are true to a very, very large extent. The only reason I wouldn't call this a softening of creative destruction is that it's, it's still a creative destruction process as Schumpeter kind of envisaged it. The good firms are going up and the bad firms are going down. New technologies are replacing old technologies. It's just that it's not, its destructive effects are not being felt as strongly on the aggregate economy. Yeah, that's what I meant, actually. Nice clarification. I understand. Carry on. Uh, And then just one other aspect of the technology story, let me kind of add that as well, which is the kind of the Walmart, uh, the Walmart effect, which is you know, Walmart is one of the, it's not the only one, but one of the firms that has, that epitomizes the very effective use of uh, information technology in its inventory control and in its supply chain. And it's thus able to respond to shocks uh, much better. So when 
a particular area sees uh, greater demand uh, and another area sees smaller demand, so the, the, the lower demand, uh, Walmart is able to kind of respond to these much more rapidly than previous uh, 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 the, uh, uh, that, that would have been possible in the past because it's information technology, use, use of information technology and inventory control enables uh, Walmart to kind of understand what's happening to demand and uh, use its uh, flexible supply chain in order to redirect goods in the appropriate way uh, and so on. So all of these are true, and we see these uh, beneficial roles of technology, we see the beneficial role that financial markets and more dynamism in the economy plays in dealing with, uh, with, uh, with, with, the very, with, the, with the inevitable variability of the capitalist economy. It may even be true, it's probably true, I mean, I'm not an expert, that monetary policy has become much wiser and that's also played a role in softening the, uh, uh, the impact of a variety of shocks. Now, but I nonetheless believe that the emphasis that emerged from our discussion that somehow the, uh, the, the aggregate volatility had become a non-issue was the wrong lesson to draw from this. And, uh, and if, I, if I may, uh, let me kind of try, uh, try to develop the, the argument for that. Go ahead. Is that okay? Okay. Yeah, sure. Uh, so, so essentially, I think what what's kind of important is that nothing in kind of social life, including here the economic sphere, is really kind of independent of human agency. So there are a variety of subtle complications that arise because we're dealing with very complex interactions. Economics is particularly successful because we are good at kind of abstracting away from certain aspects of these complications. And then as we kind of recognize some of the complications that tend to play more of, more important role than we first imagined, we kind of go back and put the spotlight yeah. on these uh, on these new mechanisms. We put them so in the model. So one of the yeah. things that we kind of abstracted away from in this whole discussion is that the only way that you can create a dynamic financial system like the one that we've just discussed and that plays this role of rapidly allocating resources from one use to another and also diversifying individual risks in an effective manner is by creating a web of counterparty relations. So let's take a very simple example. So the only way that I, if I have some idiosyncratic risks and I want to share that with you, the only way that I can do that is, is by in, engaging in some kind of financial trades with you. I will 
write an implicit promise or sometimes an explicit promise that says, I will pay you some money if my idiosyncratic shock is good and your idiosyncratic shock is bad, and you will pay me some money if my idiosyncratic shock is bad and yours is good. And then at the same time, you will be writing a, a similar implicit contract with some other firm and other, uh, other agent, and then I will be writing a similar one. And it's this web of implicit or explicit contracts that we are writing that enable the diversification of these idiosyncratic risks and then uh, enables this great dynamism of the financial market that, uh, that ultimately plays the important lubricating role that we just mentioned. And the role but in this process, sorry, go ahead. The, the role of technology is interesting in that because we've seen in the last 10 years this incredible reduction in transaction costs as technology has grown, which has allowed these agents across the global economy to create this web of counterparty risks that would have been unimaginable at the volume and, and uh, specificity of, say, in t- 25 years ago. So it's absolutely, part of the story. Absolutely. Absolutely. So there are there are two uh, there are two pillars of uh, uh, that two pillars that actually are indispensable for this development. One is technological innovations and technological developments that made uh, rapid communic rapid and relatively costless communication feasible. Very complex accounting. Uh, procedures feasible to actually keep track of what's right. going on and uh, integrated the world economy so that you're actually talking of sharing these risks not just among people who are living in the same region and have the same tastes, but bringing in more people who are uh, who have less correlated uh, demand and uh, production uh, uh, events. Then the second one is financial innovation. So uh, we'll probably innovation. we'll probably talk about this uh, uh, as we go along. And there there has been perhaps too much uh, emphasis on financial innovation in certain respects. But it cannot be denied that there has been uh, there has been a great deal of very useful financial innovation that enabled all of these uh, complex. Uh, financial transactions being executed and uh, diversification benefits of the capitalist system being exploited. But having said that, the counterparty relations, this web-like counterparty relations that this process inevitably involves, also poses new risks that did not exist before. And that were not appreciated. <laughs> that were, and those were the risks that were not appreciated. So in some, at some level, we just said, okay, we're kind of getting rid of all of these uh, idiosyncratic risks and creating this uh, 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 very sophisticated financial system. But we didn't pay enough attention to the fact that this financial system involves of a lot of IOUs and... It was because of its web-like structure, if one set of IOUs failed, it would make the next set of IOUs essentially impossible to, uh, to execute either. So it's this kind of domino effect being brought to the fore of the financial system much more than before. And a different way of thinking about this is essentially to say that what we've done very well is we've diversified a lot of regular risks 
but in the process we've created a greater fragility of the system to real tail events which involve a non-trivial fraction of the, 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 the central parties very linked parties in this web-like structure failing and creating a domino effect of counterparty risk. Yeah, that's a, a very, I think, a very interesting insight. And I, I want to I want to use that to go into your next set of lessons, which I think it's related to. Before we do that, I just want to challenge one piece about the great moderation. Go ahead. I, I agree with everything you've said with one but, and that is, unfortunately... Uh, in the run-up to this crisis, uh, monetary policy did not follow the same pattern that it followed in the previous 20 or 25 years. Uh, I hope to have John Taylor on in the future to talk about it in more detail, but we did a podcast with, with John last summer where he talked about the Taylor rule. Mm-hmm. And Alan Greenspan, from 2001 to 2003 or four took interest rates much, much lower uh, than they had been b- before, cer- to a historic lows of the pa- maybe forty years earlier, uh, drove down short-term rates and the gap between short-term and long-term rates r- rather dramatically. And one could argue, and I, I, you know, I don't, I'm not going to push this. I just think it's an interesting thought. One could argue that had he not done that, uh, all of these, many of these problems would have been either smaller or less less dramatic. Hard to know, obviously, but I think it's important to note that the fact that uh, the great moderation is over doesn't disprove the claim that monetary policy created the smooth 25-year period where it seemed to work pretty well because Greenspan clearly went uh, wildly out of, out of the range of the past uh, non-volatility of monetary policy in the preceding decades. No, I think I think that you have a very good point there, and uh, let me just add one thought to that. And here I'm really uh, going out on a limb because I really don't understand how monetary policy works. But you know, I respect a lot of people who uh, understand it or seem to understand Claim it very to, well. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to take their insights on. Go so ahead. let's let's imagine that exactly like I think. Uh, Many, many macroeconomists believe that monetary policy, uh, by setting the interest rates, has a, the ability to create uh, movements of the economy around its kind of uh, natural potential output level. So there, if that's the case, the monetary the conduct of monetary policy can also be not can, can can cannot be entirely decoupled from our beliefs about the state of the economy. Absolutely. So Great one point. thing that's going that might have gone on, and I think that's how many people at the time uh, received it, and that's why they hailed Greenspan's policies, is because there was this belief that, you know. Aggregate volatility has gone away, and we're in a new era, and therefore we can use monetary policy to kind of guide the economy in whichever way we want, and it was okay for Alan Greenspan to use an aggressive monetary policy right after the uh, 2001 downturn because that's that would be the way of the uh, of uh, of the monetary authority to get the economy back on its and and i think if we kind of uh, were 
and we here, the economists and policymakers in Greenspan, were more afraid of big recessions and crisis than we would have been, perhaps he would have been much more hesitant in kind of uh, using monetary policy and uh, worrying about the uh, run-up in asset prices, including housing prices, that this might have created. So our belief that there's no way things can go wrong really can, can go really wrong, kind of made us very comfortable in signing up to this policy. I think that's a great point. I, the word I like to use is, is hubris. I think exactly, we, yeah, that's right. exactly. we generated that's, that's exactly. way too much confidence in our ability to steer and manipulate. And, and I think when if you would ask Greenspan in 2002 or 2003 what the heck he was doing, he would have said, well, we're going to fix this later. You know, we're exactly, just going to readjust as he did. He raised interest rates dramatically not worrying, as he should have, that the jerking around of interest rates itself was problematic. Well, Absolutely. That's, that's hubris, I think, is exactly the right way. And the hubris came from our uh, somehow somewhat mistaken uh, analysis of what was happening to the aggregate economy. Well, let's move on to your second notion, which I think um, I'm going to read a, a lengthier quote. I, I apologize Oh, no, Although I, I, I like hearing myself. <laughs> I, yeah, I always like that when people apologize. I can read from my book. I say, go ahead, read a chapter or two. But this, <laughs> this is a very, very nice quote, and, and I'm going to um, – I hope I get it right. I, the, the, the first quotes I read, I think I added a word unnecessarily. I apologize. But the actual essay is going to be up on the web. But here's the quote. Our second too quickly accepted notion is that the capitalist economy lives in an institutionalist vacuum where markets miraculously monitor opportunistic behavior. Forgetting the institutional foundations of markets, we mistakenly equated free markets with unregulated markets. Although we understand that even unfettered competitive markets are based on a set of laws and institutions that secure property rights, ensure enforcement of contracts, and regulate firm behavior and product and service quality, we increasingly abstracted from the role of institutions and regulations supporting market transactions in our conceptualization of markets. In hindsight, we should not be surprised that unregulated, profit-seeking individuals have taken risks from which they benefit and others lose. A deep and important contribution of the discipline of economics is the insight that greed is neither good nor bad in the abstract. When channeled into profit-maximizing competitive and innovative behavior under the auspices of sound laws and regulations, greed can act as the engine of innovation and economic growth. But when unchecked by the appropriate institutions and regulations, it will degenerate into rent-seeking, corruption, and crime. So the part I want to – I want you to expound on that, but the part that I'm – end quote – the part that I want to – I want to hear you explain is – what would be the corruption part of that, although also the rent-seeking and crime part also as well. But in particular, you're implying, first, that financial markets were relatively unregulated. Some are. Many aren't. But secondly, that, that the agents involved exploited uh, either through some form of asymmetric information, presumably, or their access to the regulatory structure. They were able to profit while others were going to lose. I'm struck by how many people lost in this debacle, um, that the major players, uh, it's say Bear Stearns or Lehman Brothers, they didn't they didn't do so well. They didn't exploit others. They tried perhaps along the way, but they took a pretty big pounding. So talk about what you mean when you talk about this 
regulated versus unregulated and some opportunistic behavior that you feel was destructive rather than socially beneficial. Okay, so I think let me let me get let me start with uh, with a with a following, which is, you know, how much did the people who were at in central positions in the financial markets really lose? I think that's actually a difficult question because we don't have the data, but it's also a difficult question because it really depends on whether we're talking of relative losses or absolute losses. So I think if you look at, you know, LTCM crisis, the one before uh, that we had. Long-term capital. uh, uh, Yeah, long-term capital uh, management crisis, which was uh, sort of, uh, you know, like a a warm-up for our current bailout, if you you want to think of it that way. So uh, exactly the same problems that were, uh, uh, that were the source of the LTCM uh, crisis are also uh, quite important in the current crisis. So the, the, the concern about LTCM, uh, so just, just to go over it, you know, the long-term capital management had, uh, uh, you know, uh, had very large positions in, in, in a variety of markets. And, uh, and, and when, it's, uh, when it's very smart but still risky, uh, bets did not work out because there were some unexpected events. Uh, the uh, the Fed of New York and the Federal Reserve Board intervened and uh, and bailed out LTCM uh, with uh, with the fear that if it weren't bailed out bailed out it uh, it would create a, a sort of domino effect like the one that we 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 are afraid now and we are experiencing now and uh, and uh, and if you think of uh, what happened to the LTCM uh, uh, partners. Including uh, Meriwether, who was the head, and, and and many other very very smart people, they lost a very large fraction of their wealth. So if we are talking of people losing relatively, these people really were punished as a result of their actions. But if we think of what we do in basic economics, when you write a principal agent model and you say, you know, we're going to try to incentivize the the agent. You know, we, we think of, you know, reward the agent when things are going well or reasonably well. And if there is a really bad outcome that's indicative of something that the agent has done wrong, we actually punish the agent. So that doesn't mean reward him 10% of the great rewards you were giving him when things are going well, but actually punish him. So, you know, hit the limited liability constraint or, you know, uh, don't quite hit the limited liability constraint, but give some low consumption uh, that, that actually acts like a deterrent. So for m- almost all of the major players, they actually still went home millionaires. Instead of billionaires, they went home millionaires, but they didn't really suffer kind of to a great extent out of this debacle. That's the same, that's the same thing in LTCM. It's uh, you know, more or less the same thing in Lehman Brothers, and uh, and the greatest kind of uh, uh, kind of uh, nugget for this is exactly the thing that uh, that was announced yesterday in the in the in the newspaper that uh, the, the the investment banks this year are estimated to have paid over twenty billion dollars of non-stock bonuses. So this is not really looking like. A, uh, an example of great punishment for the people who are in the middle of of the of the of the fray here. Let me let me put a footnote to that. 
you're right. And there's just one thing I think you might want to add, which is, I mean, I like to use the head of Bear Stearns as the, as the example. At one point, I think he was worth about 100, $120 million. And on Mar- by March of last year, when Bear Stearns had to be dissolved, essentially, he was down to like his stock was worth about ten. So he lost he lost one hundred and ten million dollars, which is a bad day, right? A bad set a bad year, but he did end up with ten million dollars, as you exactly. point out. That's, that's, yeah. But I think there, there are two things to that. One is, I mean, you could argue, yes, it should have been worse than that. He should have been wiped out as because many of his investors were wiped out. So. Mm-hmm. You, you could argue that the incentives were not aligned properly. That'd be number one. Number two, you do have to add the reputational damage. These people, it'd be interesting to, you know, I'm sure there'll be a, a New York Times Sunday Magazine piece in the next three years on it, but it'd be interesting to see what kind of parties they get invited to and what, what restaurants they, they hide in because life isn't so good. You know, it's like Bernie Madoff, even if he kept a few houses, he's lucky he's alive. And right, he, well, Bernie, but Bernie Madoff is the exception. I mean, you know, I, I think, I mean, I guess, I guess we're not disagreeing to a great extent. We're not. But, but, but Bernie Madoff is the exception. So, you know, if you think of, uh, you know, Meriwether, uh, you know, a very, very smart guy, and I don't think he's, you know, tainted in any kind of corruption, but, you know, he was, you know, he was ousted from Solomon Brothers precisely because of, you know, uh, there were questions about, you know, the kind of uh, trading that he was involved. And then, you know, LTCM was his brainchild, extremely successful, and exactly uh, the kind of scenario that you're talking about. He lost probably uh, 90% of his wealth. But then, you know, he went to the next hedge fund. And I think he's extremely, uh, I don't know what, right now, but, you know, two years ago, he would have been extremely respected in the profession. So I don't really think that... You know, given the culture of Wall Street, betting with other people's money and 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 and, and le- leading to big losses is, is 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 going to be viewed as something that uh, that will kind of have you ostracized from the circles in which you you hang out. Of course, the Madoff case is entirely different because I think that's so blatantly criminal and Correct. so public that 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 kind of goes outside the scope of this. But, but okay, so but I'll, your basic observation is correct. So here's the question. Usually, as you point out, I think either implicitly or explicitly in your essay, uh, we rely on what I would call feedback loops of, of reward and punishment mm-hmm. that induce behave, that induce prudent, behave, prudent risk-taking on the part of principals for, their, for the agents who, who, are, who have hired them. So the yeah, question is – prudent risk-taking and prudent greed – Prudent greed. And so the question is, we've now decided, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but let's skip ahead. We've now decided that, you know, that we can't allow the full pain from these mistakes to be paid and to be uh, absorbed. We're going to not allow these counterparty risks to be unraveled because it's too messy and too costly. And so any way that the private decentralized free market would respond to this lesson has been lost. There's no way, uh, you know, if we if the government hadn't bailed out Bear Stearns and Lehman and LCTM especially, let's go back, and said, you know, too bad. It's going to be ugly, but we're going we're gonna to bear the cost now. People would have said, this is really unpleasant. 
let's learn a lesson. Any possible lesson we, and I'm by we I mean individual investors, not we economists, any possible lessons that investors could have learned from this crisis and then institutions could have responded to those lessons by changing, say, the structure of these companies from being publicly traded to partnerships. A lot of people have said that's part of the problem. They're not spending their own money or they're risking too much of other people's money. Those have all been lost. Do you agree? Yeah, no, no, absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, but that's exactly where the regulation comes in. So, so essentially, you know, let me let me make two points. First of all, uh, I think the really great success of the American economy over the past 150 years, 200 years, and to a large extent. Uh, the great success of many European economies has been that they have been able to use self-interest and ambition in exactly the right way, in the way that Adam Smith envisaged in his Wealth of Nations. People looking after their own self-interests and in the process bringing out common good. Yep. And common good here, you know, I don't necessarily mean that it's Pareto optimal. I mean, the world is far too complicated. But, but in the process, bringing innovation, economic growth, uh, new products, uh, a better standard of living, no better about it. Uh, ideas, culture, everything. But think of somebody like Suharto. I mean, you know, obviously a very, very smart guy, extremely ambitious guy. The head of Indonesia, and, right? Yeah, the head of Indonesia. And... You know, he, he's down in history books as an extremely corrupt uh, dictator that filled his pockets and his family's pockets and in the process, you know, created a, quite a lot of uh, economic problems in Indonesia. I mean, not that Indonesia went down to the same level as, you know, Zimbabwe or Democratic Republic of Congo, but, you know, everybody, you know, most people's assessment would be that Indonesian economic growth and economic uh, performance suffered a lot because of the corruption that uh, somebody like Suharto, uh, Suharto and his, uh, his cronies created. Now, aren't there people like Suharto in the United States? I mean, the United States is a much larger country, and uh, we have a lot of ambitious people. It's just that people with the same kind of ambitions, they cannot do what Suharto does because our governors, our presidents, our senators, our business leaders are generally checked. There are a lot of institutional and social controls on the people who hold economic and political power in the society. So regulation of one sort or another or institutional checks of one sort or another are first part and parcel of our lives. And second, they're actually very important in fostering the kind of economic success that we've experienced. So that, that was the kind of the, the, the introductory, somewhat longer, longish introductory statement. So now, if you kind of take that perspective and put that into the financial sector, well, the financial sector, because of the great degree of sophistication that it requires, New products are coming up all the time. You have to kind of assess what the risks are, and it's a 
essentially very hard for even an institutional investor to do this, and it's almost impossible for you know small investors like you and me or, or, or people even less sophisticated in business of economics and finance to do these things. So you've got to put some degree of trust in the people who are going to play a central role in the financial system. Now, if you could somehow have a system where that trust was kind of tied to market incentives, we would be all very happy and we would be all very enthusiastic. We don't, you know, I think I don't particularly want the government to meddle into things when we can we can do it without the government and uh, all of the politics that it brings. But precisely the examples of, you know, LTCM and the Bear Stearns and the Merrill Lynch that we just talked about means that it's very difficult for the market to do that. What are you going to do? You're going to take away all of the uh, earnings of the CEO of a financial company that engaged in risky lending or somewhat misled its, its, its clients or took part in, uh, in, uh, in, in financial transactions that were not exactly what it should have done. But at the end, this is going to reduce their wealth from $200 million to you know, $10 million. Okay, say not $10, 10 million to $1 million. That still is going to leave a lot of incentives for people to actually take gambles because there's a pretty severe limited liability constraint down there. We're not going to take people who... not going to torture them. We're not going to torture them. We're not going to put them in jail. We're not going to, uh, you know, give them the uh, hypothetical negative consumption that we have in our uh, in our models sometimes for simplicity. So those incentives are always going to be there, and that's that's the reason why we need something that plays the same role as the political checks and balances play in the political sphere when they make sure that somebody who has the enormous amount of power that the U.S president has, cannot actually misuse them in well, any... Let me disagree um, okay. and, and challenge that. I, I, right, understand, I understand the argument, but let, let's try, let's look at the other side. In your long list, by the way, of, of people who are prone to corruption, I noticed you didn't mes- mention governors. Just, I'm sure that was just an oversight. Right, right, yes, 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 yes. Especially after the past few weeks. Yeah, uh, we're taping, Illinois governors are, are definitely on my list. Yeah, we're taping this at the end of January when um, the Illinois Senate has just, I think, uh, voted unanimously to remove uh, its governor from office. But anyway, I, I think I would make a distinction – which you do not make, I think, and I'm curious as to whether you think it's an important distinction, between institutions and regulations. You, you sort of lump them together. Uh, there, when I think of institutions, I think of a wide range of things. It's a rich word, maybe too rich at times. It includes cultural norms. Mm-hmm. It includes uh, the political structure, which is extremely important because the political actors like a Suharto – are the only people in the economy and in the civil society who can use force legally. Everyone else is constrained from using force. So I think we always would all agree that we have to be extremely vigilant in making sure that centralized power is restrained in various ways. And those are the checks and balances of our constitutional system, which include much, much more than just the piece of paper, which is unfortunately of the Constitution, which is unfortunately not particularly, uh, I think, respected in many ways. But on the regulatory side, when government, when these centralized agents, these centralized authorities 
and powerful authorities try to steer or constrain the problems of opportunism that you're worrying about correctly, they often, they have, there's a problem, which is besides the fact that, that they are sub, subject to political pressure, as you recognize and mention, isn't there the problem that it leads to what I think is the lesson that you, that you did not draw in your essay, which is the impossibility of removing risk? Uh, I think as a body politic, we're obsessed with giving people a risk-free world. So we guarantee their deposits in FDIC banks so they don't have to ever worry about a bank run. We guarantee the implicitly, and it turned out to be explicit, the loans and bonds purchased by Fannie Mae to keep interest rates low for homeowners. So we have this rather – not rather – extremely complex web of regulations – where we are not well, we do not well understand their interactions, and as a result of that web, a set of economic activity tends to be pushed out into non-regulated areas, and our ability, as you point out, to constrain opportunism through the whole system is impossible. So the question then is, which direction do you move? Do you say, well, we've learned from this experience that we need to be more vigilant about trust because markets can't create them? Or do we learn the opposite lesson, which says government regulation can never perfectly remove risk, and maybe it would be better, I say maybe, maybe it would be better to let individual investors be more aware of how risky things are rather than constantly being reassured that, oh, the government will will cover that, it's too big to fail, etc. I think you're raising some excellent points, but let me say that I, you know, my conception of it is not is not in contradiction to what you are saying. In other words, I agree entirely with you that institutions are broad, and when we normally talk of institutions, we are not necessarily talking of regulation. And regulation is a very particular type of an institutional arrangement, and moreover. As, uh, as I try to indicate, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you that regulation comes with a, lot of, with a lot of political costs. So that's why it is always with a, with a bit of hesitation and a heavy heart, so to speak, that I would say, you know, we need regulation. But the issue is that the type of regulation that we need though very, very, very far from being perfect, and it's going to create a lot of other distortions, as you've mentioned. It's not one that is along the lines of the types of regulations that we've had. So when I talk of the need for regulation, I don't mean greater regulation to supposedly insulate consumers against the risky actions that they've taken. I'm not talking of regulation so that you can kind of implicitly take a gamble on your house and the regulation makes sure that you don't pay the downside. I think the kind of regulation is precisely the type that makes consumers aware of the risks that they're facing so that we can then expect them to make more informed choices and and perhaps combine with a safety net that's uh, that's a minimalist safety net, then we don't have to worry about the fact that, you know, if they have actually made these choices, they have made them unknowingly and without understanding the nature of the problem, and therefore they should 
they should be bailed out, not only because of the uh, ex post problems that this is going to create, but because of an ex ante fairness viewpoint, because you know they were they did not have access to the right type of information. So let me just uh, uh, expand on that a little bit. Yeah, go ahead. So. You know, one area that definitely requires regulation, in my opinion, is, for example, credit rating agencies. So this is exactly, in some sense, going in the opposite direction, that the credit rating agencies, because they were not regulated properly, or the, uh, let me say it's not that the, the, the relationship between credit rating agencies and, uh, and, uh, and the financial entities that they were regulating was not, they, they were uh, rating was not regulated appropriately, they created the uh, false impression that everything was riskless. So you took these bundle of extremely high-risk subprime mortgages, and out of that you created, out of a $100 of that, you created an $80 worth of AAA-rated security. So that's the sort of uh, failure of regulation that I think was important in the run-up to the crisis and was important in leading to a variety of distortions. And, uh, and that's, that's the type of uh, regulation that needs to be fixed. So in some sense, you can say that uh, uh, after this, you can say that what I'm asking for is not more regulation, it's smarter regulation. Perhaps, I don't know. I mean, I, it just, I, I think it just, uh, that, would, uh, that would be a kind of a... Uh, 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 kind of a point of interpretation, but I'm certainly saying that some amount of regulation to make sure that in you know investors have the right information and certain actions are not allowed for the uh, uh, for the investment sector uh, is, is necessary for a healthy functioning of a financial market. And let me kind of give you one more kind of analogy just to kind of bring the, uh, bring the point that I want to make uh, to the fore. And this is not going to be an, an analogy that's uncontroversial either, because I know that there are a lot of people who, are, uh, who, who may disagree with me on this one as well. But let's take the example of the FDA. Okay? So I think a lot of people would have uh, quite correctly uh, lots of complaints about how the FDA functions. But I think in the final analysis, while I share these concerns and I share the, the assessment that FDA shows how regulation can create a lot of distortions, I would say that we do need an institution like the FDA. It would be quite problematic if there was nobody who kind of made sure that chemical compounds that are marketed to solve a problem A are actually not creating some other important problem, poisoning you, and, uh, and creating other side effects, etc. It's just impossible to expect the regular patient or even the regular doctor to know what the side effects, especially the side effects of drugs that are going to form over a long period of time. So actually for the drug market, it's probably better that there is some body that says, well, here are the risks of this particular drugs. Take them knowing what the risks are so, so that we're not back to the you know, 19th century fairs where people would come and tell you that this is a miracle drug when it's uh, just water that will solve all of your problems or you know, sell you, you know, uh, water laced with arsenic. And they can also tell you there are certain 
chemical chemical compounds are they're just off the charts. We're not going to allow them because even though they may actually promise certain things, at the end they're actually we can see that they're going to destroy your liver or they're going to create these side effects, etc. So that's the kind of regulation and a kind of a uh, leaner and more efficient version of the FDA is what we need for the. Uh, pharmaceutical market, and that's essentially the analogy that I would like to see for the financial market. Yeah, let me let me just quickly react to that. I'd love to react to more length, but let me give a quick reaction, which is that uh, it's a great analogy. Uh, the FDA has made it much easier for some types of innovation to take place because consumers trust them and they don't have to make those costly investigations on their own. And at the same time, it's reduced the incentive for some innovation because it's raised the cost of, of finding drugs and mm-hmm. testing them, and you're aware of that. Yeah. But I think the real issue is not do we need an FDA or not. It's whether such an organization should be private or public. When it's private, which I think it would emerge, I think it, because of economies of scale, a private uh, arbiter and checker and uh, stamper of approval would emerge uh, that would have its own problems – just like the public system has its own problems. The question is, which is better? The, the main mistake to avoid is assuming, as you, as you do not, that the FDA would somehow be perfect. Of course, it, it is not. But the way I like what you say particularly is, how do you create this incredibly amorphous thing called trust? Now, the private sector, decentralized, self-interested decision-making, various trust mechanisms emerge because that's what people want. They want those method, those trust mechanisms. They also emerge politically. When they emerge politically, they crowd out the private trust mechanisms that otherwise would come forward. The question is whether which do you like better? In the case of the, tr- of the credit agencies, I think what's fascinating about it, and it's a great example, is a lot of people think the credit agencies were part of the problem. I'm not so sure. I think a lot of people understood that AAA doesn't always mean AAA, especially, especially when the people issuing the securities were paying their credit agencies. I think a lot of people were aware there were conflicts of interest there. But, of course, part of the problem, and again, I'm not suggesting this is the cause, but part of the problem was that many banks, through regulatory requirements, were forced to only hold AAA, yeah. which, of course, created a perverse incentive for more AAA stuff relative to more honest stuff. And I only point that out again not to say, oh, see, it was the opposite. It was too much regulation. Just to point out that the interaction between various regulations, I think, makes this problem just extremely difficult. Absolutely. I, I, think, I think I agree with that entirely. So there, 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 uh, there are two things that you said which, with which I agree wholeheartedly. One of them the, the, is the point that you just made, which is that every time you do a regulation – you do you put a new regulatory structure it's going to create a seesaw effect like the like the seesaw where you kind of press on one end and then the other end pops up and so we're never going to be able to hit perfect regulation not only because perfect regulation is impossible full stop but it's also even second best regulation is is not is not something that we can reach in a static context because every time you regulate one part of the system, that's going to create some incentives in some other part of the system, and then you have to say, you know, how do I kind of relax some of these regulations, or how do I change some other part of the of the of the system? It's, it's, it's far from perfect, but you definitely have to take into account that you're going to create these. Uh, perverse incentives as a result of regulation, and I in, I wholeheartedly agree with you that 
that uh, uh, a big part of the credit rating agencies uh, kind of the disaster that was creating by the credit rating agencies was related to other types of regulations that had you could you could only hold AAA on your balance sheet because of the uh, of, of the capital requirements, etc. So 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 that's that's all all very well taken, but obviously you can see that. You know, if you take that part of the uh, regulation out and you don't put anything else, that that's going to make other things worse. So, so we're we're kind of uh, dealing with a very complex problem, yeah. and and in some sense, this is like great for economists. There are a lot of things for us to to to, uh, <laughs> to kind of think about and to be relevant for the real world. And I also totally agree with you that if a private rating agency or a private FDA developed and were able to build a trust. Uh, I think that would be that would be that would be great as well. I mean, it it would create some distortions, but arguably those distortions would be less than those that are created by the government. But still, that I wouldn't call that an unregulated system because I think a system like that wouldn't really emerge and wouldn't really persist unless the government said, "Look, I don't need to be the rater, but somebody needs to do the rating." It could be a private agent, it could be some other agent, or, for example, in the case of credit rating agencies, if the government says, you know, for certain types of complex securities, it's not enough for you to go to Moody's, it's not enough for you to go to Standard & Poor, there should be actually seven or eight companies like that, and you need to get a rating from two of them. So that's a form of regulation. Right. It creates quite a bit of red tape, and people might complain about it, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the government itself has to say, you're good and you're not good, etc. Yeah, that's an interesting question of, of how these, tor- these sorts of quality assurances would emerge in a, in a, um, a less regulated market. But I, I, we're short on time. I want to turn to an issue which I, I'm very interested in your thoughts on, which is we've been talking so far about the cause of the crisis and what might be better to prevent, what we might put in place uh, to prevent such a thing happening in the future, and that in economics is is uh, normative. It's like what would be the the what world would we like to live in down the road, and can we get there? The positive side of economics it's a confusing term for non economists, but the positive side is more what is going to be, what is the world like, not what would we like it to be like. So I'd like you to put on your positive hat. And talk about uh, work you've done in political economy, uh, work you, where you talk about the possibility or lack thereof of a political coast theorem. That is, the idea that there are market forces within politics that can lead to efficiency, or is it really the case that these market forces in politics are, are not sufficiently active? And I'm asking the question on, I think today's January 30th. Uh, just yesterday in the paper, uh, four things in the paper really struck me as as frightening. It, they are the following. Uh, the Fed is considering altering the terms of mortgages that they're holding, allowing homeowners to pay less, lowering the principal. The House has passed out of a committee the possibility to allow judges to go on a case-by-case basis and lower mortgage amounts the principal for homeowners. The Senate is considering paying people to trade in their cars as long as the used car is then destroyed 
and I, I can't say it with a straight face, it's so reminiscent of the mistakes that we made during uh, the 30s. But the idea would be to somehow create demand for cars, American cars, by destroying um, used cars, which, of course, it'd be even better if you could only own a car for a week, in theory. <laughs> and then the fourth piece of information is the Senate is voting, has put a rider, uh, excuse me, the House or the Senate, I, can't, I think it's the Senate, on uh, the the new spending package that all the infrastructure, the steel and cement and other things would have to be bought from American firms. And I bring those examples up because I think there's a tendency in economics, there is, uh, to treat political action the same way we treat individual action, as if there is a an us, a society, a we that is deciding on what the smart regulation would be, say. But it isn't that way. It's an emergent phenomenon that doesn't have many feedback loops. And so I despair a great deal about the next uh, six months to five years of government action. And I don't see any reason to think it's going to be terribly good. What are your thoughts in light of work you've done on uh, efficiency in government? And what do you expect? So, you know, let me first start by saying, you know, just saying a few words about the theory. I mean, you're absolutely right. Uh, You know, the same kind of... uh, ideas that tell us, you know, when there are a few parties and they're creating externalities on each other, you know, we may we may rely on a cost theorem type of reasoning so that they're going to work out their differences, especially if they're interacting in a repeated fashion. Those kind of ideas have sometimes been used in the context of politics as well. And my view is that there are serious limits to them. So that the same ideas that work in the economic sphere, they work precisely, they, they, they fail to work in, in politics. And the reason is because they work in the economic sphere precisely based on an underlying institutional structure that regulates relationships. So I can, if I am creating a negative externality on you, you can come and tell me, look, this is really inefficient. Let's get into a bargain. And I pay you some money, and then in return, you seize the activity that you're doing that creates negative externality on me. You don't play your saxophone loud at night uh, or whatever it is that, that I'm doing. But what really is important in that relationship, in that, uh, in, the, in that agreement, is that there is an underlying structure of institutions that makes sure that we can actually enter into a contract, explicit or implicit. If it's explicit, we need the courts. If it's implicit, we need some kind of social norms and some uh, social ostracization mechanism such that, you know, if, uh, if, uh, if, I, if I get big payment from you and then uh, against uh, with some promise and then I totally break my promise, that's going to lead to some kind of uh, uh, negative consequences for me. The same is not really true in politics. In politics, the person who has the political power at the moment has the right and power to actually enforce the contracts and say who, what type of payments will be made and what, what kind of actions are, uh, are, are okay and which ones of them are, uh, uh, are, 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 uh, are going to be prevented. So this asymmetry that exists because political power 
is a non-divisible object and at any point in time it's in the hands of one party makes political deals much, much harder than economic deals. So that's the kind of the overarching theoretical theme that I emphasized in my work in, in, in thinking about uh, in thinking about uh, why the cost theorem type of approach uh, will have much less bite in political uh, transactions than in economic transactions. And now, of course, when you come to the uh, real world issues, this is only one aspect of it. I think it's a very important aspect of it, but there, there are many others. I mean, one uh, other important element is that actually coordination is a very difficult thing in political uh, transactions. So it's only from time to time that large number of people will kind of focus on one specific dimension. And it might well be that everybody knows they're going to be better off with free trade, and I'll come back to the issue of whether they actually know that or not. But if at this point in time the salient issue is one of protectionism and there's a significant group of vocal people who are going to benefit from that, it doesn't really help that there is uh, there is a general understanding or there is a general majority that will benefit from free trade. The people, the vocal minority who has actually been able to manage to solve their collective action problem and have some influential voice in the political arena representing them might actually get their way. And those are, again, kind of relevant for the examples that you were giving. And then the final issue, which, again, you know, was not part of my theory, but obviously is important, is that there's a lot of uncertainty in the uh, in, 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 in the public about what's, what's good policy, what's not good policy. I mean, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty among us. You know, here there is, uh, you know, Paul Krugman is a Nobel laureate economist. I mean, you know, as, as good an economist as, as it comes. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm guessing that there aren't that many things that you and Paul agree about on in terms of uh, what's right, uh, uh, what, what are the right policies going forward? Let's so pick, let's, of, well, let's pick Gary Becker as the counterpart, who also has, okay, I don't Gary have a Becker. Nobel Prize. Gary right, does. So Gary Becker and, <laughs> and, and Paul Krugman, right? So, so there isn't that much that Gary and Paul agree about. So then it's kind of, uh, we can't really expect the, uh, the, the population to, you know, the, the voters to agree about everything. So there's a lot of uncertainty that gets played by the political establishment one way or the other. And the political establishment itself is... Uh, is, uh, is, 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 is very much in, uh, in disarray when it comes to certain ideas. So with all of these things, what do I, what do I see the, the, the future of political economy in the United States, meaning how are the political equilibria going to shape up and how this is going to uh, influence policy? So first of all, I, I, I agree with you. There, there are a lot of uh, dangers because we're just the, the public wants action, the public is uncertain about what's the right action, but there's, they want some type of action. And there's some cheap and wrong solutions that can be thrown at the problem. So protectionism, it always kind of riles up people. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's like a, a rallying cry uh, for, for people to say, you know, our jobs are going to be saved. And obviously it's going to be just a terrible policy, exactly the, 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 the wrong type of policy the United States uh, adopted in the 1930s. And... Uh, and uh and 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 it would uh, it would it would play uh a very kind of negative effect right now as well uh 
another kind of uh, important political economy risk is that we can overregulate. So, you know, there has been, you know, I've, 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 I've mentioned uh, that we need some kind of regulations, but obviously uh, I, I think there is a limited amount of regulation that we need, and it's a smart regulation. We don't want to go and regulate product markets. We don't want to go and, uh, in the name of creating jobs, create entry barriers that would prevent new and uh, efficient firms entering and uh, thus stopping the innovation and the reallocation mechanism that's the heart of the future growth prospect of the American and the world economy. But those are all possible because there are many different ideas that are playing out right now, and the arena is wide open because everybody thinks, well, we need some action, and whatever action that is, we need some action, and there are just uh, different ideas are battling. The other political economy risk is that it might, there might be actually even a wider kind of backlash against capitalism and free markets if, you know, people will, will say, and they are saying, look, you know, <clears throat> what we had uh, before was free markets. It failed. Therefore, we have to go to the other extreme. That's why I kind of was trying to emphasize in that uh, uh, essay that uh, you mentioned and we've been talking about that there's a difference between free markets and unregulated markets. So if, if there are some problems of regulation that we have experienced, we shouldn't kind of immediately jump and say, these are the problems of the capitalist system or the free markets, and then we should go to a quote-unquote mixed economy where, you know, the government uh, sits at the commanding heights. So all of those are, are real dangers. But, you know, looking forward, how, how afraid am I that these are going to be, these dangers are going to uh, materialize? I guess, I guess I'm, I'm a little more optimistic than you are, uh, from at least what I what I understand from from your question, in the sense that I think at the end of the day, the Obama team at least has good economists on it. You know, we may not agree on everything, but you know, they have. Uh, you know, Obama has has put together a, a first rate economic team in terms of, you know, IQ and knowledge. Yeah, no, they're really uh, smart. You know, Larry Summers, right. Austin Goolsby, Christy Romer. I mean, these are all excellent people. And uh, so, so, you know, we're not, we're not, it's not as if, you know, we have uh, delegated the economic uh, policymaking to kind of a bunch of lawyers who know nothing about economics. But obviously there's a lot of disagreement. So the stimulus plan, what it's going to do to the economy, how it's going to play out, you know, whether it's actually emphasizing the wrong things, it's creating too much debt without, you know, really creating jobs. All, the, all, of, all of those are real issues, and I think there's a lot of uncertainty. I think any, anybody who says they know the answer, I think they're being a little optimistic. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, one of the things I want to emphasize, although I – I challenged all of uh, or many of the points you made in the essay as we talked about it earlier. I found the essay to be extremely on point about what we need to think about as economists and our our own hubris of what uh, we understand about stability and the restraints on opportunism in a market economy. I think we do have to confront those in ways that we haven't before, and I, th I think it's extremely, extremely interesting. I think uh, – and general being humble in the face of, of the coming uncertainty is extremely uh, appropriate as well. I think the fascinating issue, and we can close on this, is that 
being smart isn't enough, obviously. You have to be wise. But even smart and wise aren't enough. You know, if you think about Ben Bernanke, Ben Bernanke is the one person everyone would have said was the greatest person we could have at the Fed because he knows more than anyone alive about the Great Depression. And yet he has been struggling tremendously to cope with this as uh, the being on top of monetary policy. And more importantly, he, he is buffeted by political forces as well. And I think the challenge will be uh, what I'm I'm not I'm not pessimistic. I'm just worried. I don't I don't know if those are different, but I think the challenge will be are the is the Obama team really going to have a say when uh, so many political forces are as strong as they are? And as you point out in the essay, and you can close by talking about this, growth may very well be the uh, the victim of this political um, system. Yeah, I, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think the issue is it's not whether we have it's not just whether we have good economists, but how how does the political system interact with them and how do they react to the political system? It's just very easy at the end of the day to kind of be influenced by the political forces and the political demands that are around you and then end up with uh, with policies that then you then use your you know, brilliant economics to justify. I think, you know, many parts of the uh, uh, Bernanke-Polson plan, for example, I think it's just very difficult to justify to me, but obviously once you've been pushed into that because of political concerns, uh, and uh, then, then of course we can, you know, you can use all of your brilliant economics to come up with saying, you know, this was the right way to provide liquidity, this was the right way to kind of prevent the counterparty risk, etc. But but really, at the end of the day, there is a lot of political decisions that are being taken here. But let me come back to the issue of economic growth. I think, uh, to me, the overwhelmingly important issue here is economic growth. Because at the end of the day, even... a severe recession that costs us three or four percentage points of GDP is nothing compared to the loss that we would incur by sacrificing economic growth. A 1% decline in economic growth for the next 20 years would kind of accumulate to 40-50% of and I can't do the math off the top of my head, but it's, it should be about somewhere between 40 and 50 percent of GDP uh, in, 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 in 20 years or so. So we're talking of very, very large numbers of, in terms of what the consequences of sacrificing economic growth would be uh, if we take the long policies and if what we care about is not just you know, what our consumption level is going to be today. And, and don't get me wrong, I mean, that is very important because when we uh, sacrifice consumption today, it's not only that we're sacrificing the consumption of, you know, uh, relatively uh, uh, wealthy people uh, like, you know, like ourselves, but also people are suffering unemployment, there, there's real hardship and poverty going on in there. So, but, but at the end of the day, the economic growth is where the wealth of the future lies in. And an economic growth, we know, requires a particular political environment that uh, 
guarantees stability in you know uh, enforcement of property rights a uh, a, a good kind of law and order, rule of law environment, it requires a society that's able to be innovative, generate new ideas, channel the talent into the right activities, and also reallocate the productive resources of the economy uh, between uh, f from low productivity, declining sectors and firms to the high uh, high growth potential firms and sectors in the economy, the, the essence of the Schumpeterian creative destruction. And the real danger, and like you, I worry about it, I'm not pessimistic, but I worry about it, the real danger would be to take actions that in the name of saving 1% of GDP this year, we, 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 we sacrifice uh, you know, 1% growth rate of GDP for uh, for an extended period of time, and I was just like uh, looking at my calculator while I was talking to you, so that I do the computation right. So if we if we sacrifice 1% of GDP growth in uh, for about 30 years, that would be that would be about 35% uh, 35% lower GDP in 35 years, in, in 30 years. So that's a, that's a very large number that, uh, that, 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 that we are talking about. Uh, and it will be a very, very large price to pay uh, in exchange for trying to smooth a, a business cycle recession. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, there's a much more serious danger if what we're talking about is something like a Great Depression that would, uh, that would, uh, that would, really shake the foundations of the capitalist system but but you know as as soon as we have already undertaken the insurance policies to prevent a great depression so and i think some some sort of stimulus package is 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 part of that uh i think i think our focus should really turn to policies that are not just important for our current economic conditions, but they also do the right thing for the economic growth potential of the economy. My guest today has been Darren Asimoglu of MIT. Darren, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you very much. Was, this was a lot of fun. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.